Uh, for those visiting with us, uh, that's when Jesus entered into the roof at the Passion Play. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, anyways, uh, uh, real quick, as a, as a form of introduction, I'd like to uh, tell you that uh, uh, my really good friend, John, uh, is going to be delivering the word to us this morning. Um, John has had a very um, huge part in impacting my life over the past year, uh, and God has used him in many ways to do that, and then through me, impact our church. Uh, and so, uh, John pastors a church in uh, downtown Dayton, uh, uh, that lists a little further that direction, uh, called Refuge City. Uh, God is doing awesome things there. They're about a year old, yeah, roughly. Uh, been here a little longer than a year, but church is about a year old, and and, um, and so he's going to continue today in the same series that we are in, uh, and he's going to deliver this uh, for us. So I just want to pray for him as, as we get ready to worship through learning your word, or through his word, through God's word. Father, thank you for my brother John, and Father, I just pray that uh, you would speak mightily through him, that he would, you would speak with clarity, uh, with power, uh, and that your word would do what only your word can do. And that is bring about sanctification of your people. And so, Father, we commit this time to you and ask you to do uh, your will. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. John. I am uh, excited to be here. It should be uh, hopefully a good time be interesting at least. I've been trying to uh, study this topic and uh, see in what ways I can help uh, you guys understand prophecy in the Bible. And uh, I have to admit that my heart is a little distracted right now because my daughter is crying like crazy over there. Uh, and uh, I love her dearly. <laughs> and so I just want to run back there just like uh, a good loving father would. But uh, we're going to dive into this text, and I'm going to trust the Lord that he will, uh, he's got better eyes to, uh, and care for my daughter than I do. So let me uh, read this text from 1 Peter chapter 1. You can go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 10 through 12, and then I'm going to pray. Okay, so that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and then I'm going to pray for us. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when uh, he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been pronounced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven into things, uh, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that you have revealed through um, your spirit, through those who teach your word, through generation after generation after generation that you have revealed through these people, these servants, the glories of Christ. That it was prophesied that he would come and he would suffer on our behalf, not just 
physical pain and torment, but deep psychological torment, but also the full wrath of God. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to not take our gaze off of that. That it has been revealed to us by the power of your Spirit through your servants that Christ has suffered the wrath of God on our behalf so that we don't have to. Why would we now hold wrath towards anyone else when so much has been wiped away from our plate? Help us to be a humble, kind people that seek to make much of Christ in all we think, say, and do. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I had one idea where I'm going, one trajectory for you to take away with you, and it, it would be this, okay? Here is the one idea, main idea, to take home. Our hope is in following the pattern of a planned prophesied kingdom. Our hope is in following the pattern of a planned prophesied kingdom. That's where our hope is. That's where our gaze is. That's where we find our joy. That's where we find our delight. That's where we find our pleasure. Okay? Above all other hope, if you're not hoping in that, everything else will let you down. It is in the planned prophesied kingdom that where we find our hope. And so we're really looking at today, as you guys have been going through gospel and kingdom, what we're looking at today is the, a kingdom of prophecy. That if you are a part of the kingdom of God, you are a part of a kingdom of prophecy. Now the beauty of prophecy is that prophecy eventually will come to an end. <laughs> Alright, there will be a day when we don't look forward to something. We're not hoping anymore. It will be revealed to us. Just like Peter was talking about right here, that the prophets looked forward to a day that was coming, and they were looking forward to the coming of Christ. We also, just like the prophets, look forward to a day that's coming. We're looking forward to a coming kingdom. We're looking forward to Christ being revealed. All of our joy, all of our hope, everything is displayed through him. That is our hope, friends. And so, the first thing I'd like to do is, we're, what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of go through looking at what kind of the prophetic literature looks like and what it sounds like and uh, what a, a biblical prophet is. And then we're going to wrap all that up and show how Christ displays it all perfectly. Okay, so that's where we're going today. What, that's what I'm going to try to do for you guys today. Hopefully, uh, I'll do it in a short amount of time and not at an hour and 15 minutes, right? So, uh, <laughs> just a little stab at your, your, your pastor, who I love dearly. All right. Um, first, let's define a biblical prophet. What is a prophet? We've got to ask ourselves this from the beginning, okay? And it seems as if, if I'm understanding the Bible correctly, if I'm understanding um, these books I read that Matt uh, assigned me to read, uh, during this time, uh, so that I could preach this, uh, this sermon for you. Um, I, I think, if I'm understanding it correctly, this is a, to sum it up, this is a biblical prophet. One who speaks on behalf of another. That's it. Okay? Now that another is God. <laughs> okay? But one who speaks on behalf of another. That's a prophet. Okay? Now, uh, the funky thing is, okay, is when you think prophecy, sometimes you're, you, you've got a presupposition in your mind, 
Okay, you start going to all these uh, weird images, maybe, right? And you think prophecy, and you think and maybe John the Baptist, you know, just decked out in some, you know, some uh, skins. He's eating honey. He's got a real rugged, looking like he just came back from Haiti or something. Uh, real rugged-looking guy, right? Uh, and you're thinking, man, this guy's a nut job. Okay, he doesn't take a bath. He's got some like crazy dread thing going on. Uh, and uh, that's what maybe you think of, because, I mean, a lot of the prophets were like that. They were a little shabby looking, right? <laughs> okay, so, and we always think about, oh, they're talking about something coming in the future. That is not the definition of a biblical prophet. They're not always talking about things coming in the future. Sometimes, in fact, the majority of the time, they're talking about what's right there in front of them. They're dealing with present circumstances and trying to say, I'm here to speak on behalf of God. Okay, so in 1 Peter chapter 10, let's go, let's go for 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. This is, you know, he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Okay, and they're inquiring what person or what time the spirit of Christ that was indicated to them would be predicted the sufferings of Christ, the subsequent glories. Okay, so clearly we do see right from this text that the, the prophets do talk about things in the future. Okay, they're definitely talking about things that are coming. They're looking forward to things that are coming. That's definitely something that prophets talk about. But turn with me really, uh, actually, you, I'm actually going to have a lot of text today, okay? Um, so if you're a good, like if you did Bible drill growing up, I mean, you can try to keep up with me and that'd be great. Uh, but I did send them to Rusty and they should be hopefully up on the screen for you, okay? So, uh you can just write them down and go check them later and make sure I didn't say some heresy or something, okay? All right, so 2 Peter, if you want to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, uh, Peter continues to talk about prophecy, and he says this. I think this is helpful for us getting this idea of what a biblical prophet is. For no prophecy was ever pronounced by the will of man, but men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, who is also God. Okay, we need to have a good Trinitarian theology. So it's, he's basically saying, God told him to speak it. He really told him to speak it. Okay, uh, this is uh, all these words that you hear, these biblical prophets speak on behalf of God. I promise you. All right. All right. So I'm telling you, God, the father told him and it was through the spirit who is also God. All right. So we see that Peter seems to understand that biblical prophet is just someone who speaks on behalf of God. We also see in Jeremiah chapter one. Verse 4, it says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah seems to understand his book that he wrote of the Bible as the word of the Lord came to him, that he's speaking on behalf of God. He's not just coming up with the, these words himself. He's inspired by God to write down what he's supposed to write down. Theologians would call this special revelation. Okay? This is special revelation, that God has revealed himself in a special way. This is not just general revelation that I can look at a tree and say, okay, I wonder how that tree got there. Maybe there was someone who created that. That's called general revelation. This is special revelation, that God has spoken through someone a word to us. Okay, and so the word of the Lord came to me saying, I remember thinking about this idea when I was actually going right over here to Wright State, that my, uh, my uh communications professor said, hey, whenever you read something, you need to take the author for what he says and not what you think he says, <laughs> okay? What you, and, and so I actually kindly actually went up to the professor and I said, okay, well, if I read the Bible then that way, and if the Lord, if the writer says the Lord said, did he say it? He's like, well, I guess if you want to take it that way, you know, 
I'm just like, hey, buddy, you know, I'm just taking you to your logical conclusion. God said it, right? That's what the author wrote down. He said, this is the Lord that said this, right? And so we've got to take the author at his word. So a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of another, particularly a biblical prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God. Now, obviously, the, probably the most clearest example of a biblical prophet that we can think of is, like I said, once you're thinking through those biblical presuppositions, you probably have someone that comes to your mind. And my mind, the first person I go to is, is Moses, right? That, Moses, the greatest prophet in all of Israel, right? In all of Israel's history, he is considered the greatest prophet. And so Moses is the receiver of what word, of what covenant? Usually prophets are kind of tied to a covenant, and what covenant is he tied to? He's tied to the Sinai covenant, right? That the children of Israel go to Mount Sinai and they receive a word from God that Moses writes it down. He comes down and he talks to him about it. He says, hey, this is what God told me. He told me the Ten Commandments. And then he gives them more details about specifically how to work out the Ten Commandments as you go throughout the Pentateuch. Okay, and so Moses is a receiver of the Sinai covenant. It's a significant covenant because it is a covenant that Israel will be tied to for thousands of years, <laughs> okay? And so, in fact, some people would say that, or Jews, I mean, today, would say that they're still tied to that covenant, okay? So here we have people who are tied to the Sinai covenant. Now, the beauty is, is when you look at Moses's life, okay, if you were, if I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Bible, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the biblical story here, is that when Moses first receives his assignment to go speak on behalf of God, is he like, jacked up and ready to go. He's like, yes, God, awesome. You called me, I'm going to go. No, he's not. He is frightened out of his mind. Okay, he is, says, God, please send someone else. And actually, he and God kind of get into a fight about it. <laughs> okay, I, I don't know what type of person likes to fight with God. I mean, I mean I've done it myself, so I, I do know what type of person, and I'm one of them. Um, but it's not wise, obviously, because he's clearly more powerful. He's going to win. He's clearly got a better argument strategy going on. I mean, he knows how to, he's smart. I mean, he created me, right? <laughs> so he knows how my brain works. Okay, so anyway, uh, that, that was a really bad rabbit trail. Um, so um, Moses is initially afraid, okay? And this is actually a common, remember I said in our beginning is we want to follow a planned pattern, okay? What you're going to see regularly with prophets is they are frightened little people all the time. Prophets regularly do not want to go because they know if they have to speak on behalf of God, people are going to ostracize them. People are going to tell them they're false. You're wrong. God, God told you that? Seriously? I mean, think about this. If you were to go out today and to say to someone, God told me to come tell you this, they would <laughs> cry to God, right? <laughs> he talked to you. Think about this. I mean, they should be afraid. I think what this does, though, is what this communicates to us about biblical prophets, as you later see this in, in Numbers chapter 12, is it says about Moses that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. If you have a healthy, fearful reverence of God, it should create humility. So I think one of the marks that you can see of a biblical prophet is he desire, he's a humble man. He's afraid of God. Jeremiah later says that God burned this on his heart, and so he's got to speak it. But he doesn't want to. <laughs> We're told that the prophet Isaiah, it's burned on his tongue. 
He's got to speak it, but he doesn't want to. And so I would ask you this, friends, is that clearly God has called us to speak on behalf of him. If, if you have called, if you've been called by God to have faith in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit, he has called you to be a prophet. <laughs> to speak on his behalf to the world. He's given you the great commission. And you, I, I want to ask you, do you have, are you afraid of that? Do you have a healthy fear of God, knowing that you are one who is called to speak on his behalf. You should have a humility about you when you think about this idea of a biblical prophet. When you go out and share the gospel, do you come across as arrogant, as prideful, or as one who fears the Lord? There should be a significant difference. The world should notice a difference. The world has prophets just as much as we do. Okay, they do. People that speak on behalf of another. And yet the world should, their prophets should not look like our prophets. Our prophets should look different. Okay, and so some other things that you can uh, think about as you, uh, you think about uh, what a biblical prophet is, is biblical prophets sometimes come to elaborate on covenants that have already been established. Okay? Uh, sometimes they come to clarify covenants that have been established, and sometimes they actually come to add on to covenants that have been established. So they add pieces on to a certain covenant. And so all these are things that, folks, uh, that prophets do when it comes to that. They're one thing that you hopefully heard there as a common denominator or theme when I'm talking about defining a biblical prophet is they are always tied to a covenant. They're tied to a promise. And so one author put them as covenant enforcers. And when I heard that idea of enforcer, I, you know, this is going to actually kind of commu- communicate my age a little bit here, but uh, I actually thought of G.I. Joe uh, and Nemesis Enforcer. I don't know if you guys remember him. Like he was, uh, you know, in the G.I. Joe cartoon movie. Uh, he was a, uh, the guardian of Cobra La, right? I know, I'm like, this nerd is totally coming out right now. Uh, but... Nemesis Enforcer was the guardian of Cobra Law, like it was this promised land for Cobra Commander, okay, where he came from, he was a prophet sent out to like conquer the world and like do it for the sake of the kingdom of Cobra Law, you know, (laughs) I don't know, it was kind of funky, Uh, but Nemesis Enforcer was this guardian, okay, he was the enforcer of Cobra Law, he was in charge of all the guards and he was the, the biggest, baddest, toughest guy in the land, okay, but he, he didn't speak, he didn't say a word, he was just this enforcer. And so prophets are covenant enforcers. They're supposed to guard it. Uh, Paul actually talks about this with Timothy. He says, guard the good deposit that was, was given to you. Guard the covenant. Guard the faith. Okay, and so uh, if we're called to all be biblical prophets, then we are covenant enforcers. We've got to know our covenant. We've got to know uh, Nope, this is not a part of the covenant. Yes, this is part of the covenant. No, this is not a part of the covenant. This is part of the covenant. We've got to guard that together. You can't just depend. You can't outsource that. You're now all called to be biblical prophets. Okay, you can't just outsource that on Matt or Rusty or, or uh, whoever else is the spiritual leader of the church. Okay, we're all called to be biblical prophets. And so we're supposed to be like nemesis enforcer. Guard the covenant. <laughs> So first, we've defined kind of a a biblical prophet, and now I want to move into uh, 
looking at what prophetic literature looks like a little bit here. So obviously God's word has a variety of genres. Uh, there, are, there is apocalyptic literature, there is uh, historical writings, there's poetry, there's all sorts of different, there's narrative, there's all sorts of different genres in the Bible. Uh, and so uh, we know that through all these varieties that there are um, different goals or ideas that many of the authors are trying to do, and that's why they use different style, that God allowed them through inspiration to write it in a style that was very comfortable with them, okay? Uh, and so most of the old, oh, I don't know if you know this, but most Old Testament books, I would say, I would argue very strongly, most of them are prophetic in nature, okay? Uh, remember, because a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of another, okay? And so if prophecy is speaking on one who speaks on behalf of another, so we're speaking on behalf of God, then I think most books of the Bible are prophetic because they're speaking on behalf of God. And so it's, it's actually interesting that when you look at the Hebrew canon, which is called the Tanakh, okay, uh, it's basically broken up into three major parts here, and that, that would be the Torah, um, and that would be the prophets and the writings, okay? That's in, the T stands for Torah and Tanakh, and the N stands for some Hebrew word I don't know how to pronounce, and the K stands for some Hebrew word that I don't know how to pronounce. So, um, but the N means in Hebrew, whatever, I think it's like Nithum or Nephim, or I, I don't remember what, Zach's shaking his head like I'm way off, so. <laughs> uh, but I didn't write it down because I was like, I'm not going to try to pronounce that at all. But it means prophets, okay? Uh, the K stands for writings. Now, it's interesting that when you look at the Hebrew canon, that the Hebrew canon is actually ordered differently than the way it is in our Western Bible. It actually... Uh, says that the Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Hey, that's the same as what we got, right? But when you get into the next part, it actually goes like this. It says Joshua, this is the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And it doesn't refer to them as First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. It just calls them Samuel and Kings, okay? So you, you see it skips over. It didn't insert Ruth in there, did it? Okay? Uh, it didn't insert Chronicles in the former prophets, at Chronicles is actually put in the writings later in the Hebrew canon. Okay, so the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew version of the Bible is actually ordered a little differently. And so what they write, what basically when you understand what's going on here is the Torah clearly is the law. And then the next part of the Hebrew canon is the formal prophets and then the latter prophets. So that means when you're reading Joshua, when you're reading Judges, when you're reading Samuel, when you're reading Kings, these are prophetic books. Why else would the Hebrews put it as the former prophets? <laughs> okay, so if you're reading First and Second Samuel, it's a prophetic book. All right? Uh, it is that First and Second Kings is seen as a prophetic book. The latter prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the, the book of the Twelve, which is the minor prophets, those are the latter prophets. Now we look at those and we say, oh yeah, those are clearly prophet books. But many of us don't read First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings as prophetic books, even though they're ordered that way in the Hebrew canon. And then you look at, obviously, the writings comes after that. And so what, what, am, what am I really saying with all of this is if you actually turn over to the Gospel of Luke in Luke 24, Jesus understands these, uh, this idea. 
who better to make this argument that all of these prophets are prophetic, these books are prophetic in nature than Jesus, right? Luke 24, verse 27, it says this. That Jesus is on the road to Aramaeus. He's resurrected from the dead. He's walking along the road with a couple guys, and they're talking about uh, what's happened in Jerusalem and all these different things. And uh, he starts walking them through about um, the scriptures. And in verse 27, it says this. And beginning with Moses, which would be the Torah, right? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. So it's beginning with Moses, and then what does he say? And all the prophets. What? Okay, wait a minute. So you're telling me that everything that's in the Hebrew canon after Moses is all prophetic books? <laughs> you see that? Luke sa- seems to indicate, he says, Moses and the prophets. And then Moses is a what? He's a prophet. And he even wrote these first, so they're all prophetic. <laughs> Okay, and then what is, what is he clearly saying about all the, the Jesus? Why is Jesus doing this? And he interprets in them all the scriptures, things concerning himself. Remember, a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of another. So the Old Testament is about what? Jesus. People are talking about Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about Jesus. If you have not gotten that yet, get it today. <laughs> It is about Jesus. Every little iota, every word, you need to try to figure out how is this connecting me to Jesus or connecting me to the ministry of Jesus. Because that seems to be the way Jesus understands the Old Testament. And guess what? Jesus wrote the Old Testament. (laughs) So I think he probably understands a little better than we do. It's going back to what my communications professor said. I need to take it for the author's intent. Jesus is actually the divine author. So he seems to understand that this is all about him. Now, it's also important to understand that prophecy is progressive. This is still under the subheading of prophetic literature. We're trying to understand about prophetic literature, that it's progressive. That means that uh, the way my uh, professor in seminary described this to me, my Old Testament theology professor, it said like this, is if you could look at Scripture, okay, it's like a telescope. Okay, the, the further and further you go along, the picture gets wider and wider. Okay, so I can start with Mo, I can start in Genesis, and the more, Genesis 3.15 tells me something about the coming of Messiah. Okay, but the more I go along in the narrative, the more I go along in the Bible, the picture gets clearer, clearer, and clearer. Because I start in Genesis 3.15, and I clearly know that the Messiah will come out of um, Eve, out of her line, out of her descendants, out of Adam's line. And then when you later go on, you, you, you slowly start to see that God saves the world through a man named Noah. All right? And so we start to see, okay, he's got to come out of Noah. And then when you go on, you see that God calls a certain man named Abraham. says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay? So he's got to come out of Abraham. And then you keep going along in the narrative. And eventually, uh, Noah's sons have sons and sons and sons and sons. And they have lots of sons. And then one of his sons says, hey, it's out of Judah. Okay, so you're going along in the narrative, and then you're looking for someone who comes out of the tribe of Judah, and then next thing you know, you're in 2 Samuel, and you start hearing about this guy named David. Okay, and David, the Lord seems to indicate, hey, it's through you that I'm going to send this Messiah. Okay, and so as you're going along, this scripture is getting, it's, it's honing in, it's getting bigger, and you're, you're starting to get it, see the picture more clearly. 
And it doesn't just talk about the Messiah. It talks about other things as well. It talks about the promise, and we're going to talk about those in just a moment. But it talks about the promised land and, and other things as well. Heaven. Uh, and so pro- prophecy is progressive in its nature. Okay, it's moving. It's moving forward. It's looking forward to a coming day. So this literature reveals, basically, here's four major things that you can look for in prophetic uh, literature. It reveals promises, plans, patterns, and fulfillment. Okay? It reveals promises, plans, patterns, and fulfillment. Uh, Michael Lawrence, author of a book named Bib- or, yeah, a book called Biblical Theology, says this, There is one God and one plan to solve one problem with one solution. History as Scripture presents it uh, and follows a pattern. Okay, so he's saying there's one God with one plan, right? He's got plan to uh, deal with this one problem with one solution. And his- history, as Scripture presents it, follows a pattern. So history follows a pattern. Now, that sums up kind of prophetic literature. There's a couple things that we need to know about prophetic literature. So let's, let's kind of apply this really quickly here. If we claim to be Christians, if we claim to be Christ followers, okay, that we're going to model our lives after what we see Christ doing, that Christ is clearly doing some things in Scripture, okay? That he's clearly laying out promises through his prophets. He's clearly laying out plans, all right, through his prophets. He's showing you patterns through the prophets, and he's looking forward to, he's, through the prophets, you're looking forward to fulfillment. And so I'd ask you this. Um, friends, do you keep your promises? Are you known as a person who keeps his commitments, keeps his covenant, or keeps her covenant? When you make a promise to someone, we should be people of the word. God promises something and he keeps it. If we're modeling our character, if we're modeling our lives after Christ, then why don't we keep our commitments? If we're saying, I follow Jesus, we need to keep our commitments. Don't be a double-minded person. Don't be a hypocrite, which is what a lot of people outside of these walls say about the church. They promise one thing, and then they do another. (laughs) They think we're hypocrites. Friends, we can't live that way. Because we reflect the character of God. We speak on behalf of another. We need to keep our commitments. Let me ask you this, friends, and and, hey, this is getting at me right here, okay? I'm asking this question as someone who's bad at it. (laughs) Do you make plans? Do you make plans? Some of you in this room don't make any plans at all. You just do whatever. (laughs) God makes plans. We should make plans. Now, I'm not wanting you to you know, be so rigid that you can't get outside of your life plan or you can't get out your plan for the day. Uh, as Piper says, if, if I live my life by list, then, you know, one day I'll die by a list. <laughs> you know, so uh, so I, I don't want you to think, but hey, clearly we look into God's character. He's got plans. We should be making plans. Now, particularly if we want to get at this a little bit better, right, you should have plans to raise your children to be God-honoring people, shouldn't you? You think that's just going to come together? Ah, well, you know, I hope it works out. (laughs) No, we should make plans to teach our children the gospel. If you don't ever make a plan when, friends, we're in a war. (laughs) 
And, and, and people who realize that they're in a battle, that they're in a war, they make plans. The guys who don't make plans, the girls who don't make plans for being in a battle, you lose. You get your butt kicked because you don't make plans. And you're in a war for your children's hearts. You need to make plans. You're in a war for your own soul. Do you have a plan to read your Bible? If you don't make a plan, you won't do it. I promise you. Take it from someone who's been a Christian for almost 30 years. I still struggle with this. And if I don't make plans to get in the Word, I don't do it. We need to make plans so that we can follow a pattern. We can keep our promises. We can keep our commitments. And we can look for fulfillment. Do you see how like thinking through just the ideas that are in prophetic literature and what they say about God's character actually have huge implications on the way we live our lives? Are, are we connecting it here? I'm seeing a couple nods. I'm seeing a couple just... <laughs> All right, we, are we good? We're, we're staying with me? We need to make plans. We need to have rhythms. We need to have patterns in our lives. So that was prophetic. First, we defined a prophet. Then we looked at prophetic literature. Now, let's look at the pattern that we see in prophetic literature. Now, I would say this is the pattern that you primarily see. Sin, judgment, and salvation. Sin, judgment, and salvation. That's the main pattern that you usually see in Scripture. Uh, a guy named Stephen Dempster would define this idea of judgment more as the kingdom lost. That's what he calls it in his book, Dominion and Dynasty, the kingdom lost. Now this is a result, why, why was the kingdom lost? It was a result of sin. That the man and the woman are put in the garden, and they're to build a kingdom that's honoring to God. They're going to be in perfect communion with God, that God can walk and talk with them. Okay? And they sin. And then what happens? The kingdom's lost. They're, they're taken out of the garden. They're taken out of the presence of God. They're taken out of perfect community with God. That's the judgment. Sin results in judgment. So you lose the kingdom. So this is a theme that we need to see. That uh, Robert Vaughn argues in his book, uh, God's Big Picture. The judgment of God is not mentioned much today in the church. That we're afraid to talk about judgment. That God's judgment is coming. Final judgment. And, and we would, I, I, I think I've talked about with my friend Zach before about this, that there's times where we can actually say that God is judging someone now. Because <laughs> there's clearly things that Scripture says, hey, if you do this, this will happen. <laughs> that's God's judgment. That's, that's not you trying to judge the person or to condemn them, but that's God. It's his word. He said, you do this, this will happen. You follow this pattern, this result will happen. I mean, come, this is the way people live their lives, right? A lot of people do things and a judgment happens. There's consequences to our actions. But I, even though I don't think the judgment of God is preached much in the church today, I do think that most people, and I think this is where you can get at this idea of judgment when you're talking to your unbelieving friends or when you're even talking to each other. If you're you know, in danger of, you know, calming down as a condemning person or, you know, a judgmental person. I think this is a way you can kind of get around here. And it's through this kingdom lost idea. 
I think most people today understand that the kingdom has been lost. Now, why am I saying this? Is if you walk up to anybody in a coffee shop, you go over right over here to Starbucks, or you go to, over to one of the campuses here, or you go to work, you could ask somebody, hey, you think the world's like doing okay? You think everything's right? Things perfect? And what would they say? Nope. <laughs> it's not perfect. No, we've got some problems. That's the kingdom lost, friends. That's where that idea comes from. This is general revelation. People get it that things are not the way that they should be. A child gets that. So you can get at this idea of judgment by going around it through a different way, saying the kingdom's been lost. What God intended, what God set out, it's, it's not the way that it should be. And that's, so it's a way that we can talk about judgment uh, and help people understand what we really mean by the judgment of God, is that things are not the way that they should be. Remember I told you before that prophets are not always talking about the future. I'd say actually very rarely do they talk about the future, but they are regularly talking about the judgment of God. They're regularly doing that. They're saying, if you do this, this will happen. If you disobey the Sinai covenant, you will be exiled. You will be removed from the land. And the, one of the reasons that the prophets do this, why God inspires the prophets to do this, he wants the people to understand that when another kingdom comes and conquers you, that it's not a result that their God is more powerful or they're a more powerful nation. It's you've disobeyed God and God is judging you. God is still over it. That's why God is wanting them to understand. That's why he sends prophets. He's saying, I'm still under control. I'm sending this kingdom to judge you. <laughs> I'm doing this. I'm still on my throne. And so when you think about this, uh, think about a rebellious child. Okay? And you, you've warned this child repeatedly. Don't take your new shoes and go outside and jump in a mud puddle. You do it, and you're going to be grounded. And you warn them, and you warn them, and you warn them, and you warn them. And what do they do? The first thing they do when they get outside. Jump in the mud puddle. And now you say, judgment, it's got to happen. I warned you not to take your new shoes outside and jump in the mud puddle. There has to be consequences now. And they're crying, and they're you, you say, I warned you. <laughs> This is what God is doing through his prophets. He's warning us. We are rebellious children. He's saying, don't jump in the mud puddle. Don't do it. And so sometimes this is where it can really help you to understand biblical prophets because sometimes the people actually don't go in the mud puddle. So you see how prophets can be talking about something in the future and it doesn't become fulfilled because he's wanting them to stay away from sin. That doesn't make the prophet a liar. It just makes it fulfilling, saying, that's what I wanted. I want you to not jump in the mud puddle. <laughs> so not only has the kingdom been lost, but also uh, one of the, the overarching themes, this is salvation, this is where we find our hope, is that the kingdom will be regained. The kingdom will be regained. And so uh, we see this through two covenants that I'd, I'd say that the Sinai Covenant does not nullify the patriarch, patriarch Covenant. Okay, that the Sinai Covenant, 
is a cov- it's, it, it's a result of sin that the people, God brings Israel out of Egypt, and they continue to rebel against God. And so he says, since you don't know how to act like God people, <laughs> I'm going to have to walk you through in detail and show you how to do this. So he actually adds more and more law onto their lives because he's got to walk them like step by step through this thing. Uh, and so you, you later see in the prophets that God says, okay, there will be a time though, and you see even hints of this in the Pentateuch, where Moses seems to indicate that he understands that this time is going to be in the future, is I will write my law on your hearts. I will change your affections. You'll want to do more of my ways instead of your rebellious ways. But until that time, he gives them the Sinai covenant. The Sinai covenant is a temporary thing. All the laws that you see in the first five books of the Bible, that's a temporary covenant. It's just he's adding on law because people just don't know how to live. That they're rebellious in their hearts. And he says, look forward to a day when I will change your hearts. Uh, That he seems to, like I said, Moses seems to understand this. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, which should be up on the screen for you. Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 11. For this commandment I command you today is not too hard for you. Okay, this is Deuteronomy, what's going on here is, is I, I'm preaching through this book right, actually right now, and it is a repeat of everything that's been said previously in the, in the Pentateuch. So it's Moses' it's like final sermon to the children of Israel before they're about to go into the land. Okay? And so uh, he's saying, I've, all this stuff I've commanded you today, it, this sermon I gave you, all these laws, uh, it's not too hard for you. It's, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us? Uh, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that we should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, at that time, that's not going on in Israel. Moses is writing this, looking forward to a time that will, God will put this on the people's hearts. He seems to understand that Yep, you don't get it right now, but God will bring a day when he's going to write this on your heart. Because the children of Israel are not displaying this. (laughs) They're rebellious all throughout the Pentateuch, even in Deuteronomy. The old generation dies off, the new generation comes, and they're just as rebellious. They go into the land, and they continue to be just as rebellious. So Moses seems to be, he's, he's getting a glimpse. The telescope is being opened up to Moses, and he's seeing, hey, There's going to be a day when this is on your heart. It's not going to be far off from you anymore. It's not going to be a day you're looking forward to. It's going to be right here and now. Paul seems to understand this as on the other side of this vision in Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 5, Paul writes this about Moses. For Moses writes about the righteousness that was based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. What is he quoting here? Who will ascend into heaven? Where did I just read that from? Deuteronomy. (laughs) Paul is going back and he's reading Deuteronomy and he seems to understand this as this was about Christ. This is about the new covenant. Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss or the sea? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. In verse 8, 
But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, in the mouth one confesses and saved. For the scripture says, for anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no uh, distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is going back and he's reading Moses and he's understanding that this has to do with Christ. Christ is the one who descends down from heaven. Christ is the one whose the sea is always a symbol of the dead. You see that in the book of Revelation, which is also a prophetic book. And so Christ is raised from the dead. Paul seems he's a very good Hebrew. He understands his Bible. <laughs> and so he realizes that the, that the kingdom can be regained. That revelation is progressing. That they're, that they're looking forward to a new exodus that will happen. They're looking forward to a new prophet. They're looking forward to a, a new covenant. They're looking forward to a, a new king. They're looking forward toward to a new kingdom and even a new creation. And I would say that when you, you, when you think about that word new, new exodus, new prophet, new covenant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I don't think it's necessarily, I mean new, I mean better. But clearly Israel was given a king, wasn't it? I mean, several kings. <laughs> that was prophesied and it happened. They were given a kingdom, weren't they? They're given a kingdom, but it's really not a new, it's a better. The better king is Jesus. The better kingdom is the kingdom under Jesus' leadership. The better creation is the, created, uh, the creation that Jesus is creating through the Holy Spirit. And so we see revelation is progressing. Not only uh, do we see the kingdom lost, we see the kingdom regained, but we also see, uh, just to wrap up a couple uh, themes that we see in prophetic writing, is we see uh, the prophets regularly talking about the genealogy, Okay, so they're, they're following a line. I talked about that a little bit earlier. Where they're following, you know, Adam's son and then Noah's son, Abraham's son, David's son. Right, so we get that. that there's a certain line that they're following. That uh, there seems to be a uh, remnant that God says that he will keep for himself in texts like Jeremiah 16, verses 14 through 15. I'm not going to read that. Um, there seems to be a servant that will come in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Uh, it's really interesting that when, this, uh, when Isaiah talks about this servant that's coming, he uses this perfect tense in Hebrew. And this perfect tense means that it, uh, it's a future event that's already taken place. That's what perfect tense in Hebrew means. It's a future event that's already taken place. And so really what, when, Mo, when Isaiah's writing this down about this suffering servant, God sees, hey, this is already taking place in my mind. <laughs> and so he sees that he's going to send his son. We also see that the God will save a remnant from the nations, as we see in Isaiah 49.6. Um, that, that's a promise. Like I said, it's not a new covenant. It's a better covenant, right? And that's really just going back to the covenant given uh, to Abraham, that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, as we see in Genesis 12.3. We also not only see genealogy, but we also see ge uh, geography. That God promises that there will be a new temple and a new creation. There will be a new land 
that God's people live in. We see in Ezekiel 48, or sorry, 40 through 48, that Ezekiel seems to, as the, the picture is getting opened up, he's starting to see the telescope, okay? It's getting broader that he sees this new massive temple. He sees new creation uh, and all the, he sees a language of a river and a garden, and he sees this massive city uh, with this huge temple in it, and he's, he's seeing this great vision. Now, as far as I know, um, what Ezekiel describes in the book of Ezekiel has never been seen on the face of the earth. Now, when you get to the end of the Bible, which is actually Second Chronicles, okay, and Cyrus gives the decree for the Israelites to go back into the land and to build the temple, they're trying to live out this Ezekiel prophetic narrative, okay? They're trying to rebuild the temple, but every scholar, every liberal conservative says the temple that they built fails in comparison. It's not even close to the vision that Ezekiel saw. I mean, this temple that Ezekiel saw was massive. I heard one scholar say that it would, it, it would literally run from the tip of North America to the tip of South America. That's how massive the temple would be. Big, huge temple. So we've never seen anything like that on the face of the earth. I don't don't know. I mean, I haven't. Have you? Okay, yeah. So we're we're all good. Nobody's seen that. And so he's looking forward to new creation that the author of Revelation seems to indicate that he understands this. John, the author of Revelation, says this in John 21, 22. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light. Its lamp is the lamb. That cannot be the right quote. Sorry, I misquoted to you. (laughs) Uh, Oh, yep, I didn't write it down right. It is 2122. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. I actually put down verse 23. Okay, so verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Revelation seems to understand that this new temple idea is about Jesus. What does Jesus say in the Gospels? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will resurrect it. (laughs) Jesus seems to be indicating the temple is me. You think about this massive thing? It's me. (laughs) I'm the temple. And I bring about new creation. Now John later goes on, he understands this idea of new creation. You go down to uh, Revelation 22, verse 1, And the angel of the Lord show me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This river idea is to take us all the way back to the garden. There was, a, there was rivers that ran through the promised land in the garden, right? And so John is actually saying, hey, the kingdom has been regained. We, we have a geography. We have a place where we dwell. We live with God. Seems to be a real place. So not only do we see the kingdom lost, we see the kingdom regained, we see the genealogy, the ge- geography, uh, but we also see the exiles returned. Like I said before, in Second Chronicles, we see that the exiles are told to go back to the land to, uh, under the proclamation of King Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Now, if you read uh, Exodus 17, it says that no foreigner may rule over Israel. Okay? 
No foreigner may rule over Israel. He has to be a native. He has to be one from among them, okay? And so, uh, clearly, Cyrus cannot be this king who proclaims, go back to the land and rebuild the temple, because he's a Gentile. <laughs> he can't be the king. And so you're left at the end of the Hebrew canon still looking forward to the king coming. And so uh, the promise has not been fulfilled yet. And so as we close, we get to the end here. As you think about the kingdom lost, do you heed, do you heed the warnings of losing the kingdom? The scripture regularly warns you, if you follow down this path, you will lose the kingdom. And really what it's saying is, is if, if scripture has, if the Holy Spirit has come into your heart and changed it, you don't go this way anymore. You go this way. <laughs> and so do you see patterns in your life taking you this way towards the lost kingdom or towards the kingdom regained? You should be able to notice patterns in your life. And if you want to learn how to do that more, talk to Matt, talk to Rusty, talk to some other mature believers in the church. Not only does it, we talk about the kingdom lost, but we think through this idea of the genealogy. Who are your closest relationships with? That you don't think about people in a worldly way anymore. You are now a part of the covenant people. The kingdom has been regained in your life. Who's your family? The people you covenant with. <laughs> These are your brothers. These are your sisters. Jesus seems to understand this. Hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. These are my mothers. These are my brothers. These are my sisters, the ones who do the will of God. He seems to understand family not as just blood, but as God's covenant people. As we think through this idea of geography and the prophets, where are you going? What kingdom are you living for? Are you living for your kingdom or are you living for the coming kingdom? Some of you, your trajectory for your life is way too low. <laughs> what you keep, keep your gaze on, what you put your hope in is way too low. Your affections are too shallow. Oh, if I can just get married, I'll be happy. <laughs> oh, if I can just... Make the football team. <laughs> oh, if I just get the right job. Your trajectory's too low. Get your gaze off these worldly things. Get your gaze on Christ. <laughs> Those things will never make you happy. You've seen it time and time again in the media. People chasing after su success, celebrities, rich life. And then what do they say? I feel empty inside. I'm going to divorce my third wife and go with this younger one. They're never happy. Their trajectory is too low. They see that they want fulfillment in life, and they're trying to find it in things lower than God. Get your gaze off of those things. Stop just thinking about your retirement. If you are a king, if you are a child of God, you have retirement. It's covered. <laughs> Jesus is really rich. He will take care of you. He owns everything. And he promises you that he will adopt you. 
It means you get the full rights, the inheritance. Stop worrying about your inheritance. Lastly, as we think about the kingdom regained, the new prophet has come. A new covenant has come. A new king has come. A new kingdom has come. The new creation is beginning. One day, Christ will return and take us for a final exodus. We will leave this broken world behind. And so that we see through Christ that he fulfills the prophesied kingdom. That the kingdom was lost through us. But through Christ it's regained. That Christ calls a remnant to himself and promises that he will deliver them from exile and take them back into the new Jerusalem. We see also that Christ now brings a new bloodline. His covenant children. We actually are all blood relatives now. It's our blood is found in Christ, what you celebrated earlier. That was a covenant ceremony to remind yourself that you are all part of the same bloodline. And not only that, but Christ is our new temple and he is bringing about new creation. And so as you follow the patterns planned out in the prophesied kingdom, you should find hope. Our hope is in the following the patterns of the planned prophesied kingdom. And if you follow these patterns, friends, you will find hope. Think through prophetic literature and what it means for your life. Find hope in it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for revealing these truths to me. It was encouraging to think about your prophesied kingdom. May you continue to... um, Bring us along by your Holy Spirit to continue to reveal to us your coming kingdom. Some of your kingdom is being realized now by the changing of our lives. We see it. The world around us sees it. But it's not here yet. And so may we look forward to a better day when we will be with Jesus. That is our hope. That is the pattern we follow. Is following the pattern of the prophesied kingdom. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.